The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Amen. Thank you, Ethan. Um, what's the name, name of that old hymn? The King of Love, my shepherd is. You know, those old hymns, uh, it's funny. The, the language, you know, is almost Yoda-like. Like, we don't, we don't speak that way, right? Well, the, the King of Love, my Savior is, right? You know, it's, it, and I'm not going to try to impersonate Yoda. But uh, it, it's, it's a different way of speaking. But I'm telling you, it is good for us to sing those old hymns because they remind us. I mean, not just the old hymns, but the new as well. They remind us, there's an old quote, and I don't know who said it, but the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Well, when we sing those songs, those old hymns, it reminds us that the arc of redemption, of, of the universe, of history, it bends toward redemption. That there is a church that has gone before us, believing these same truths that you and I celebrate week in, week out, and there will be a church, if Jesus doesn't return, that will celebrate these same things after we're gone. I mean, you realize that? God will preserve his church, and we're singing the same things and believing the same things. Now, we can get off from that. We get away from Scripture. We can get away from that. But I'm so thankful for these old truths and these old hymns, as well as the truths that are in these new songs as well, that we worship with authenticity and a reality of, of, of the Spirit indwelling us. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles with me uh, to Exodus chapter 20 this morning as we walk through the Ten Commandments. Last week we, uh, uh, we looked at the first commandment, uh, have no other gods be- before me besides me. Um, and this morning we will look at the second commandment, Lord willing. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I've got a lot that's running through my head in these three verses in, in uh, Exodus 24 through 6. And I'm going to try to be um, cognizant of your time while also giving room for the Spirit to move. You get what I'm saying? And so I, I, I don't want to overwhelm you, but I also want to do the... the the text justice this morning. So uh, last week, uh, have no other gods before me. If the first commandment had to do with, with worshiping the right God, this commandment today has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall make no graven or carved images. We worship the right God and we worship him in the right way. Now some might be tempted when we come to this this commandment to, to just dismiss it away and say, well, you know, let's be honest. I don't walk around in our culture today and see a whole lot of graven images. I don't see a lot of carved things. And, and maybe this is one that we can sort of just skip over. Why don't you move on from here? But the reality is um, the, the New Testament repeats this. It's not, it's not like this was something that was happening in the Old Testament era. And once they got to the New Testament, this was gone and done the New Testament repeats this. 1 John 5, 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And the fact that God has preserved that text and included it in the Scripture means that He has sought that it's necessary for us today. Even in 2016, where we don't look around and see in our culture in America 
a lot of graven carved images. Now, you go other places in the world and you will still see this very much so uh, happening all over the place. Well, if the New Testament repeats this, then and God's preserved for, for us today, then there must still be, even in a culture that doesn't have these sitting out everywhere, there must still be within our hearts a temptation to create idols. In fact, John Calvin is famous for saying man's heart or, or nature is a perpetual factory of idols. We will make idols. and I mean, that's what happens in a factory. Just mass production, right? Just over and over. Stand on the assembly line. Just watch one after the other come by. And that's, that's the picture here that I want you to see. The human heart, apart from the grace of God, apart from the gospel, We'll just keep producing idol after idol after idol. We will worship something else because we have been made to worship. We have been created to image him. And Jesus showed us, even though he was God himself and man, he existed to glorify the Father. And so you and I, we reflect the very design. We reflect God when we worship and we will worship something. See, idols are not merely carved images with a hand. They're also made in the heart. Um, an idol can be anything that gives form to what we desire more than God. It can be something like a 32-inch waist, which is what I was when I graduated high school. You know, And I will never get back there again. But in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe one day. You know? uh, or, or maybe it's, it's an athletic scholarship for your kids. Maybe it's having the, the perfect yard. I mean, it's green and it is manicured and there's not one weed in it except for what blow, blew over from your neighbor's yard and you're going to go have a talk with him in a little bit and get that remedied. I mean, maybe it's having this perfect yard that you can brag about. Maybe it's having a, a, a straight white smile. Maybe it's a degree or a promotion See, an, an idol can be all sorts of things we create in our heart that gives definition to what we desire more than we desire God. We, we seek to find our identity in it. We say, well, if I don't have that, then what use is there? I mean, you, you see what we do there? If I'm not this size or if I don't have this then I'm, I'm a worthless individual. We find our identity in these things. We, we place our trust in them for the future. Well, if I can only get that, then things will be okay. And these are idols that we create in our hearts. And so I want to just read this passage to you today, and I want to show you some things about idolatry, even today, 2016 America. So Exodus chapter 20, look with me at verse 4. <clears throat> You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Now, today, I, I don't know that I'm going to get to everything in this passage, but I, I do want to at least start and show you some things about idolatry. I'm going to sort of 
couch this sermon in, in two major points. That first, we'll look at the why not make idols. And then if we have time, we'll get to the why. So there's a why not. And then there's the why we should follow God. Okay, so, so from the negative and the positive. So here, first off, why not? Number one, idolatry calls the creation the creator. This is what idolatry does. It looks at the creation and assigns to it a value that it doesn't have. This is what Paul described in the book of Romans in chapter 1 when he wrote in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now you look around, you go outside and, and this time of year is beautiful. You look around at creation and you see things begin to, to, to bud out. You know, pollen gets all over everything and, and I've expressed to you my frustration with that but you look around and you see the sunrise and the sunset and you see the seasons and how regular they are and you look around and you see there's this cannot be by accident this is by design and you look and god has shown us that he exists this is what paul's pointing to in romans 1 19 and then he goes on in verses 21 through 23 of romans 1 and says although they knew god They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this is what's wrong with the universe. God has created all that we know, and he's shown us that he exists. But rather than looking at that and saying, I will worship God. The God who has made this, instead, humanity has said, nope, I will not worship that God. I will make my own God. And they began to worship the creation instead of the creator. And, And I think we can look around and we see the foolishness in this. Nobody, nobody here probably says on the surface, someone bowing down to a carved image is wise. I mean, do you see the foolishness of this idolatry? I mean, listen to Isaiah chapter 44, verses 13 through 17. The writer here says, The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man and the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Do you see the ludicrousness in this? This is utter foolishness that I will take a tree, cut it down, use half of it to warm myself, make some bread, and use the other part of it to to carve something and bow down and call it my God. I mean, all of us look at this and say, surely this, yeah, that's foolish. That is That is ridiculous to do that. Yet there are people around the world doing this. Lost in spiritual darkness. 
My concern is not whether you and I today in this room, whether or not we can see the, the foolishness of this blatant idolatry. My concern is whether or not we can see it in ourselves. Whether we see it and ignore it. Let me just give it to you in, in maybe some language that will bring it home. If, if an alien landed in Columbia or in Clemson this fall on a Saturday, what would they assume? What, what conclusion would they draw? I mean, just bear with me here. And, and I know I'm, I'm meddling. You know, I start talking, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight because I'm from Tennessee and I've left Tennessee out of this, but I would say the same thing about Knoxville, okay? But alien lands Saturday in the fall, and this is what the alien sees. People arise early. They put on all sorts of elaborate clothing and, and even paint. I mean, they paint their bodies and stuff, right? They, they gather with friends and family and even strangers around these smoking fires where enormous amounts of meat is, is roasted and consumed. Then they pour inside massive stadiums to stare down at 22 men on a field chasing an oblong brown ball. They, they, these people in this massive stadium, they yell and they scream loudly. They, they jump up and down. Some of them even dance and they shouldn't dance. They, they hit one another on the hands. They do what they call the wave. This place is going crazy. It's nuts. They, they laugh and they cry and they hug and they doing this with all strangers even. They don't know one another, but they're just doing this together. And then they leave and they talk about almost nothing for an entire week until they come back and do the whole thing over again. And what, what conclusion does the alien come to? Does the alien not come to, this is their God. This is who they worship. This is what this community, this culture is centered around, is this event, whatever this is. Now, you and I may say that to cut down a tree and to use half of it for, for warmth and baking bread and use the other half for bowing down to it as a God, that's foolish. But you and I have all sorts of idols in our lives and we are blind to them or we choose to ignore them. We're Here's what I'm not saying, okay? Let me just redeem myself for a minute. I am not saying that we should not enjoy football. I love football. I grew up going to football games with my dad and, and uh, got the car towed because we parked in the wrong place in 1982 and had to walk and find the impound. I, I'm, I have memories upon memories. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy football or anything else in creation. What I am telling you is we shouldn't call it God. We shouldn't treat it like it's God. Because at the end of the day, it will not matter. So secondly, not only does the idolatry call the creation, or, or, or uh, the creation, the creator. Secondly, idolatry tries to control the uncontrollable. Idolatry tries to control the uncontrollable. And in uh, verse 4, he says, you, you shall not make for yourself. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And idols in, in, in this culture were believed to be able to do almost anything except feed themselves. 
This seems crazy to us, but they, they were considered to be able to do almost anything except feed themselves. This is why even today you will see in foreign countries where idolatry is huge, you will see these little statues all around the, 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 uh, the marketplace and all this, and there will be little plates of food, little food out in front of them. The belief was that the idol could do almost anything, but he couldn't feed himself. Therefore, he was dependent on me. So I would, I, I, if I'm going to worship God, I'm going to prepare food and I'm going to bring it and I'm going to sit it in front of him so that I put my God in my debt. Because if I don't feed him, he doesn't eat. So he needs me. And I can control him. And really, the more I feed him, the more he will be in my debt. If I feed him enough, if I feed him the right things, then, then he will... He will give me fertile crops. And this is what idolatry tries to do or historically has tried to do. It's tried to control the uncontrollable. I've often wondered, you know, you see these little statues and this food sitting in front of them. And that food could have gone to feed hungry people in the same city. But instead it's sitting in front of this lifeless little statue that can't do anything with it. I've often thought, what happens to that food? I mean, somebody has to come by and pick that up. You know, and, and take it away after it has spoiled. I mean, what are they thinking at that point, right? I mean, this is, I, I just say that to you because I just want to show you the, the, the nonsense of what this is. If an idol can't feed himself or herself and I feed him, then he's now dependent on me. Therefore, he's in my debt. This is one of the things that makes idolatry so attractive is that I can create a God that I can control. Now, Albert Moeller, in, a, in his book, um, Words from the Fire, I think is the title of that book, said we can, pick up, we, we can pick an idol up and we can put an idol down. We can move an idol to this place and then we can remove it to another place. The idol is at our disposal. We can hide it from our sight or we can put it in the center of the room. This led to all sorts of twisted practices that were considered normal worship. Uh, and I don't want to be too graphic because I could get really graphic with, with idol worship in, in ancient history. But um, for, you know, just the more I would eat, the more my God would get, which means that the more he would be in, indebted to me. Things like temple prostitution were rooted in this. Beliefs that what happened there would motivate the gods because this idol now becomes sort of an icon that, that motivates the gods to now do what I'm doing and, and procreate fertility uh, in the earth. This led to all sorts of, of evil and twisted things. And idolatry may not take the same form today, but the idea of a God that can be controlled is still pretty alluring. And, and we see this. Maybe you're not guilty of some of these things, but maybe some of them you are. People pretty often make promises to God, don't they? God, I'll do this if you'll do this. God, as long as you'll do this, I'll, I'll, I'll promise I'll do this. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to put God in their debt. God, I want to be able to control you. We turn on the TV and find some Christian broadcasting, and, and most of it, I'm telling you, most of it is worthless. It will lead you astray, I'm just telling you. There's some good stuff out there, but you better be very careful looking at that stuff. But faith healers, 
These, so many of them are, are attracting a crowd saying, if you'll sow a financial seed, if you'll give a monetary gift, then you'll be made well. And this is an attempt to control the God or to control even someone being a, a medium in between the supposed God and the constituents. People say, if I fulfill my vow, then God will make me rich. If I say the right prayer every day, then God will surely bless me. If I go to church, then God surely won't let anything bad happen to me. I've had conversations in this building with people who have similar thoughts to those. Why is God letting this happen to me? I mean, I'm faithful. I'm here. The reality is we're trying to control God. Idolatry says, God, I want you to do what I want you to do and nothing more. Here's the reality, though. God refuses to be controlled. He will not be controlled. He is God. Al Mohler went on to say, a God we can control is no God at all. And he's right. At the moment we've created a God in our mind that we can control somehow by our behavior or our promises or anything else, we have stopped worshiping him and we have made us our God. So third, not only um, does it call the, the creation, the, the creator, it tries to control the uncontrollable, but three, idolatry tries to compare the incomparable. Verse four there, he also says, don't make any carved image in any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the, uh, in the water under the earth. And to which I would beg the question, what else is there? And that pretty much covers it all, right? And where else are you going to go? You're not going to see anything else beyond that. Ancient idols would would be pictured basically as one thing. An, An ancient idol would be pictured as a bull or a frog or a beetle or something like that. And it was it was doing that was was trying to portray a particular characteristic or responsibility about that supposed God. He's, he's a God of strength or um, he's, he's a God of life or, or whatever the case may be. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone in this culture say, well, you know, for me, God is like fill in the blank. Well, I like to think of God like blank. D.A. Carson says, as soon as you start saying God looks like this, Somehow God gets reduced. He becomes something that we can encapsulate, domesticate, and thus in some measure control. Let me just tease this out for you. Someone says, you know, I hear what you Christians preach and you, and you believe the Bible, but there's a lot of wrath in the Bible. I like to think of God as love. To which I would say, absolutely, God is love. But is that all he is? Because if that's all he is, then where's justice? I mean, what, what happens there? And someone, say, uh, someone would say, for, for me, you know, God doesn't judge. Really? Then who does? Nobody? Anybody that wants to? These are questions that we must think through. Someone says, I believe in Jesus. I just don't really believe in the God of the Bible. (laughs) Jesus said that he and the Father were one and the same. That if you had seen him, you had seen the Father. 
That the Father was the one who sent him to begin with. See, we, we can't begin to separate out the things we like about God and the things that we dislike about God and, and give more attention to one than the other. That's why in our songs, we try to sing not just about the love and the grace of God. We sing songs that include things about his wrath. And, and, and about other things as well, because we want to give you this picture of who God is. He's more, he's bigger than how you imagine him. Riken, in his commentary, said, Idols create a false image of God that is inadequate to his deity and unworthy of his majesty. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. And this is what idolatry does. It is impossible to compare the incomparable God. Fourth, idolatry tries to include the exclusive. The very fact that, that here God says, in heaven above, or in earth beneath, or in the water under the earth, points to the fact that, that there would be lots of temptations to create lots of idols because surely there were gods of all sorts of things. And, and what idolatry historically has done has been to attempt to cover all the bases. But while trying to cover all the bases, they've covered none. This is what um, the, the ancient world believed in multiple gods, each with its own specialty. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom a god who was good in all things, was infinite in all his perfections. And this is what Paul encountered when he was um, uh, in Acts 17, when he, when he is in Athens. In uh, Acts 17, verse 16, Paul was, was there waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. What happens is Paul's there in Athens. He looks around at this polytheistic culture that has all these idols. And he, as a Christian, spirit within him is provoked. It bothers him seeing this false worship of the city in which he's now there. And it should provoke us as well. The text goes on. Paul is invited to come speak at the Areopagus to the men who are the wise men of the day. In verse 22 to 23, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You see what happens here? I mean, they don't know that, that they've got all of them covered. They've created all these idols. It's full of idols. There are idols everywhere you turn. In fact, one commentator said that it might have been easier to find um, idols in, in Athens than it would have been to find living human beings. There were that many. And, and they've got so many, but yet they're still unsure that they've covered them all. And Paul sees this inscription to the unknown God, and, and they were so afraid that they'd left one out that they just slapped a generic label on there that said, hello, my name is unknown. And they, they, they worshipped him. They didn't know what they were worshipping or how they were worshipping. To worship him, but they just wanted to have all their bases covered. And Paul goes on to tell them that I want to tell you who that God is. He's a God, the God, who has created 
all things. And he sustains all things. And he has appointed a day on which he will judge the entire universe. And he's validated that by raising a man from the dead. And it was on that when they heard him begin to talk about the resurrection that they gave up on Paul. They called him crazy. Many of them walked away from him. Some believed. But the resurrection was too much for them. And to which I would say to you today, idolatry, this type of idolatry tries to include the exclusive, meaning that God is alone. God, we live in a world that is very similar to Athens when Paul was there. It has all sorts of religions and they say all of these religions are really the same. We're all worshiping the same God. Maybe we call him by different names that we live in a very inclusivist, inclusivist society and culture today. The inclusivists today might even say that Christ is the only Savior. But they would go on to say, but faith in him may not necessarily be required. There may be other ways that you could, you could encounter that and receive that other than faith in Christ. The problem with that is that Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Greg, one of the last times uh, he he preached, uh, quoted the scripture um, that God dwells in unapproachable light. Well, he's made himself approachable in sending his own son. There's no other way to get to God other than through Jesus Christ. Peter and and John stood before the Jerusalem council and testified before the Sanhedrin right after Jesus had just been nailed to a cross. They stand emboldened by the resurrection, filled with the Spirit of God, and they say there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They look into the threat of losing their own lives. And they don't back away from the exclusivity of this God. Jesus is not, I don't want to be cliche and I don't want to be insensitive, but Jesus is not a way, but he's the way. There's no softer way to say that. Idolatry tries to include the exclusive and then finally idolatry tries to approach the unapproachable. Idolatry tries to approach the unapproachable. In verse 5, God says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, when someone comes and bows down to an idol, they are attempting to approach their God. Uh, That idol becomes this icon. If, If I go to my computer screen, on my computer screen there are certain icons. Those icons, if I click on those, they will take me into the larger program. The icon itself is not the program, but it is the way that I get to the program. This is the way this word is used in Scripture. That the idol here, they believe, becomes this icon. That it's not God itself, but it directly leads me to my God. And whatever I do in in its presence, 
one commentator said when a statue of a given god was carved in certain ritual incantations spoken over that statue to cause the essence of the god to enter it, that the statue was then understood to become a functioning conduit for anything done in its presence from the worshiper directly to the god. In the same way that today I'm speaking in this microphone and it's being recorded back there on a computer and then it will be uploaded later on onto the podcast and someone later on will click on that podcast and listen to this recording. I'm speaking today knowing, not not wondering if someone down the road will hear that. I'm speaking not to this microphone. I'm speaking to them, but I'm going through this microphone. You see, this is what they believe, that I would come to this idol, this idol wasn't my God, but it led directly to my God. For years, I, I don't know that in, in their in the church I grew up in, in the church you grew up in possibly, that we had real idols. I don't remember looking around and seeing idols. In fact, I'm pretty confident we didn't. But I do believe that there was a, an unintentional idol created because we measured success in the church for so long by things like church attendance and, and, and giving and meeting our budget and building programs and things like that. And so those things became... Hey, if we, if we get there, then we've made it. We, we are a successful church, and we didn't really consider the fact whether we would be successful in the eyes of God. We were trying to approach the unapproachable God in a way that he never said, approach me. Well, if I, I'm elected deacon, then I must be super spiritual. I sing in the choir, if I teach Sunday school, these things became ways that we tried to approach God and scoot up closer to Him and be seen as more spiritual than others. And the reality is, I've said it to you a thousand times, if not more, there is nothing here that, that causes any of us to be elevated above one another at all. We are brought together through the gospel. The ground at the foot of the cross is completely level for those who will kneel in His blood-spattered dust. But I think for years, this church culture created this unintentional idol. But I would remind you that we don't have any idol. We don't have any icon other than Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the way we approach the unapproachable. First, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Bible says, He is the image. The word there in the original is icon. He is the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You want to know how you get to God? You can't go any other way than through Jesus alone. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 20 said, Through Him we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. I don't know what the idols are in, in your life, what you're bowing down to, what you're creating in your heart. I, I pray that those are not even there. I pray that Jesus is, is at the forefront of your attention, that he has your heart and that he's causing you to be more and more and more passionate about pursuing him and glorifying him and coming through Christ in a relationship there to, to glorify your God. But I know that all of us are still sinners. Yes, yes, we've been 
We've been given the Spirit of God and we don't have to sin, but on a daily basis, you and I do from time to time sin. We have this draw, this pull toward it still. And the reality is that you and I have a tendency to create idols unknowingly. We can say at times, out of our mouths, Jesus is my Savior. He alone is my hope. And we know it and we believe it. But we all know that there are times when our, our focus gets out of kilter and we begin to give something else precedent over him. And we begin to want something more than we want him. We begin to trust in something else besides him. I'm praying that this series through these Ten Commandments leads us to see those. And by the grace of God calls us to repent. I don't have a lot of time to, to deal with the last half of verse 5 and, and the first part of verse 6, but I'll just quickly look at these. If God alone has the right to our worship, then God also has the right to tell us how to worship. And that's really what this is all about. One reason that God forbids idols is that we would take Him at His word. That we wouldn't keep demanding, God, show me. God, if you really love me, then show me. God says, you don't need to be shown. You need to hear my voice and believe me. And this is hard for some. God says to, to us, to them, he's a jealous God. And jealousy gets a bad rap and is, and is bad in a lot of ways in this culture. But with God, jealousy is not a bad thing. God has just freed them from their bondage. He's brought them out of slavery. Is he supposed to now say, it's okay if you want to pretend someone else did that. You just go ahead. And the equivalent, the equivalent there is for a husband to look at his wife in the arms of another man and say, that's okay, honey. I know deep down you really love me. We must understand that when we form these idols and turn to them over our God, it is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. This is hard preaching for me today. This is not an easy message. God has a right to be jealous because we belong to Him. I hardly ever go to McDonald's until they play this stupid Monopoly game. <laughs> then I find myself saying, man, $50,000 would be nice. You know, and I'll never win that. But I'll go through there and I'll get you know this or that and I'll peel that thing off and go... You know, and it's the same piece every time. I've got two and I need one more and I'll never get the one, right? The concept behind Monopoly is that when you play that game, you're trying to, to own all the properties. You're trying to own, own you know, all the utilities and, and all the, the railroads, all that. You're, you're trying to own the board. You have a monopoly on the board. Here's the picture I want you to draw. You can't come around the corner on the board of your life if you are a believer and not find one property still available. It belongs to him. He has a monopoly on you. 
He has a right to tell us how to worship. We must listen and say, I will not go according to my whims or my desires or my preferences. I will go according to His Word. I will have no other gods before Him and I will make for myself no idols. Lastly is this, our, our worship has lasting impact. This verse, and I hate to even start it, but I, don't, I won't come back to it, but this deal of I will visit um, the iniquity for the fathers on the children for three and four generations, but I will show steadfast kindness to those who love me for a thousand generations. This has been used to teach this idea of generational curses, and, and I'm not going to I'm not going to teach against or refute it on time for, for this this morning. But this could be saying a couple of things. This could be saying that God will indeed punish the children for the sins of the father. But there are verses that contradict that in scripture and in Ezekiel and other places. God says that the father won't die for the sins of the children and the children won't die for the sins of the father. So I don't think that's it. I think instead God is probably saying maybe three things. That children often will suffer the consequences for their parents' sin. That as their parents make these choices to value other things more than God, it affects their children. Consequences come. I think he may also be saying that children often learn to repeat those sins as they've watched their parents do those things. This is... Sometimes what happens, it's not a generational curse per se. It is simply just life. This kid has grown up watching this, watching their parent, the one they look up to more than anybody else. They value this and not this. And so they learn to value this and they go after this thing. But I think also maybe God here is saying that he will not let the children off the hook for practicing these same sins just because they learned them from their dad. If, if you're here today and you're a child of a, of, a, of a family that had their values out of whack and, and didn't honor God like they should, and you think, well, that gives me freedom to just repeat that and God will understand because, man, look what I grew up in. You need to stop kidding yourself. God holds you accountable for your sins. He's no longer going to just punish your, your, your parents. Now he's dealing with you. So repent. Turn toward God. Leave off from that thing that you are pursuing more than you're pursuing God. And begin to follow after him. If, if you're here as a, a dad or a mom, let me say to you. The way you worship has lasting impact. You have the potential And I don't want to overstate this, but you have the potential to point your kids either toward having iniquity visited on them or walking into the loving relationship of God. You say, well, I've done a terrible job. It's late in my life with my kids. I don't have much time left. It's not too late. Turn and turn back to God and say, God, I don't know how, but God, would you show me how to point my kids toward you? I don't want them to walk in 
iniquity. I want them to value you more than anything else. I want them to be the treasure that they'll leave everything for. And I want them to see it in me. And some of you today may be here and you may say, well, I, I, I just don't know. I think it's way too late. Maybe you grew up in that sort of family and um, maybe you're in that family now. I would just point out to you that in those verses, God says, I will visit on the iniquity, the sins of the fathers, on the children for three and four generations of those who hate me. But steadfast love to a thousand generations for those who love me and obey me. And let me just point out to you this. Every single one of us are haters until God intervenes and causes us to love him. So that if you're sitting here today saying, it's, it's hopeless, it's done, I'm under this curse, there's nothing I can do, I might as well walk away from, from the church, hear me on this. God has been doing it for generations and he will for generations to come. His grace conquers his curse. That's what the gospel does. The gospel looks in and says, no, no, it doesn't always have to be that way. My son died for you. He died to pay your sin debt. He died so that you might have life and have it abundantly. If you will turn and trust in me, you may not know how to proceed from here, but I will show you, I will walk with you through this. The gospel can conquer your family tree. Church, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what idols you're setting up. I pray none. But today, if you're aware, if you're aware that there is something that is taking that place that belongs only to God, if you're trying to come to God through an alternative means, a way that He has not prescribed, then today, today, turn from it. Destroy that idol. By the grace of God, ask Him to destroy it in your mind, in your heart, in your affection. Ask Him to wash the grace of His gospel over your life. That you might be once and forever clean and that He might wash you again and again and again as you daily struggle with it. And He might lead you back to Him. And He might make you in the end a trophy of His grace. Today, repent and turn to Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, the tone of this sermon has been so incredibly serious. And God, maybe at times felt angry. And Lord, I don't want it to feel that way. Because God, in the end, that, that section winds up with you extending loving kindness to a thousand generations. Lord, that's your heart. That's your desire. So God, I pray today, Lord, that in spite of maybe my tone, God, that you might just pour out your love today. That you might do it in such a way, Lord, that shatters idols and causes men and women and boys and girls in this room and listening to this podcast to turn from them and to worship you alone. God, you have our hearts. If we are believers, if we are Christians today, you have a monopoly on our lives. You have a monopoly on our affection. So God, I pray Lord, that you would put down a house and a hotel and on every piece of property. 
God, claim it for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond. Um, Maybe there's something that's come to mind that this is an idol in my life. I need to repent of this, destroy it, maybe confess it, get it out in the open, bring it into the light. And we want to give you that opportunity. I'll be down here on the front, love to hear from you. Um, There'll be people in a prayer room that'll be out through those doors that would love to pray with you. Use these steps as a place to come and pray. Maybe gather with your family or with someone close to you and just confess that. You know they're a believer. Confess that even to them. It's the priesthood of believers that can happen right here. Don't, don't harden your heart today. Say yes and respond to him. Let's worship. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.